Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 260. 260. I'm Douglas Wilson, and I'm glad you decided to join us. I'm going to begin with a little uh, autobiographical snippet. Uh, it just happened the other day, and it was not a momentous thing, but it was kind of striking. Not momentous, but kind of striking. And then I'm going to give you a, a thought or two about what's going on. So uh, I'd listen to books in my truck as I drive around. And, and of course, because Moscow is a small town, uh, I listen to books in three-minute segments because it's never all that far or sometimes a little longer. But I listen to books, right? And I, I listen to books once and they're one time through. And other books, like um, many of the books of C.S. Lewis, I've listened, listened to uh, repeatedly. And I just recently listened again to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. All right, so there you are. I was uh, listening to The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then last Saturday, I was driving into town from, we were living out in the country, and I was driving into town uh, listening to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, we live up in northern Idaho, and it's pretty snowy up here. And we've just had a goodish bit of snow drop on us. A few fronts have come through, and we, so we've got, we got some piles of it, right? So I'm driving through the country, listening to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I was at the part where Edmund is has been taken captive um, by the witch, and the witch and the dwarf and Edmund are sledding along, and because and because Aslan has come uh, back to Narnia, everything starts to melt, and the dwarf says this, you know, at some point he says, "This is no thaw. This is." Aslan's doing. This is spring. Uh, your winter is undone because the witch had kept Narnia bound in winter, always winter and never Christmas. So everything's starting to melt and Edmund's noticing it getting warmer and things starting to, the water starting to trickle and, and so on. And, and as I was listening to this, I was, like I said, driving through the country. I was driving under some trees evergreen trees, and some snow dropped off the branches of the tree I was driving under, right, just right in front of me, 10 feet in front of me. Snow dropped off uh, the branch and, uh, or branches. And one second later, like one, like one one thousand, that length of time, one one thousand, the description of snow melting in Narnia had Lewis said a great load of snow fell off the branches. <laughs> so uh, this is this is a pretty specific kind of thing, right? So I'm driving along and driving down a country road and snow drops off the branch. And one second later, the book I'm listening to says, and snow dropped off the branch. Now, somebody's going to say, well, clearly, if one of our charismatic brothers or sisters would say, it's a sign. It's a sign. Now, let me back up for a minute. Uh, if you wanted to say it was a sign of a particular thing, like this should have been taken by me as encouragement to continue driving into town 
to pick up the mail, which is one of the things I was doing. And this is a, and God was trying to give me a particular kind of message through this. I then that would be claiming more than we know. That would be saying more than we uh, have any right to say. But to say that it's not a sign of anything in particular is not the same thing as saying that it doesn't signify. Okay? What do I mean, signify? Well, the way I take it is that that juxtaposition of snow falling off an actual branch in my life while I'm listening to a book that one second later has snow falling off a branch signifies what? It signifies to me that I am not living in a meaningless universe. That's what it signifies. It signifies that this is not a random concatenation of atoms. It signifies to me that I am in a story. And in the story that I'm in, I'm listening to a story. And then God, for whatever reason, decides to say, in effect, hey, look at this. It it would be impossible not to notice what happened there. It was, you know, and something like this has only happened one other time in uh, my life. I mean, listening to a book and and having something happen outside the outside the vehicle, uh, and that was when it, Nancy and I were listening to uh, a book called Boys in the Boat, and it was um, it's the story of um, University of Washington crew in 1936, I think it was, that went to the Olympics, a bunch of um, roughnecks who uh, made it to the Olympics rowing, and. Um, and we were driving to Seattle or back from Seattle, and we had gone the northern route instead of Snoqualmie Pass. We went over Stevens Pass. And right when we, uh, basically within a mile or so of uh, crossing the summit of Stevens Pass, the, um, the book mentioned Stevens Pass. And, but that was, that was like within minutes. This thing with Narnia was within one second. It's sort of like, being bopped on the head saying, this was not an accident. This was not an accident. Now, you could take that non-accident and say, and therefore, this means I'm to mail the letter I was intending to mail. Or this means, and and that's where you're claiming basically to have the gift of prophecy. And I, I think, again, you're sharing more than you know. But it is not sharing more than you know to say, Look at how the world dovetails. Look at how all of these things come together. Always will be God. So, we're continuing on with episode 260 of the podcast. As we continue to work through the hamartiology lexicon, we come to an interesting word that has been translated a number of different ways, with only one of the renderings describing a sin. So, this is an interesting one. The word is. Existemi, existemi, and the sinful meaning of it is to bewitch, to bewitch. Other innocent renderings are things like to be amazed or to be astonished or to be astounded, something like that. There are two uses of this word in a negative sense, and both of them are found in Acts 8. So Acts 8 9 and Acts 8 11. Here's verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. 
So he bewitched the people of Samaria. And then two verses later, and to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. So think of it this way. We could render the word in these two places as amazed or astounded, more of a neutral meaning, not not a, a charged meaning of a sinful meaning. But it would still have to, contextually, it would still have to have the implication that the people who were amazed or astounded by the miracles done by him were astounded or amazed and therefore persuaded in a way that they ought not to have been persuaded. If it's a sin to believe a lie, and it is, that makes it a sin to believe a lying miracle also. If we ought not to believe lies, then we shouldn't believe lying miracles. You can see this in uh, in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. Well, just very quickly in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, it says if a prophet or a seer prophesies something and it doesn't come to pass, then you can write him off as a false prophet. But then in Deuteronomy 13, it has another contingency. Suppose a prophet rises up and prophesies something and it does come to pass, and then he says, let's go worship this other god. You're supposed to reject that also, which means that the power that he was using to work, the uh, the miracle that he was doing, the thing that he did that astounded you was something that was in the service of a cheat, in service of a lie. So we have a responsibility not to accept, not to be persuaded by things that astound us, things that are amazing to us. God don't never He's God. So continuing on with the podcast, episode 260, my book review this time is a book called The Truth and Beauty by Andrew Clavin. The Truth and Beauty by Andrew Clavin. Clavin is a conservative commentator online, a lot of very funny uh, video clips uh, analyzing cultural trends and political trends. He's also a detective uh, novelist. I think he makes his living that way. He's written some uh, hard-boiled detective fiction, that sort of thing. But he's also written some nonfiction. He wrote The Great Good Thing, which was his testimony of how he came to Christ. And this book, The Truth and Beauty, is a very, was quite striking, very interesting. What he's trying to do in this book, and I think he is successful with a good portion of it, is he wants to, he's trying to understand the Sermon on the Mount in the light, in the context of, or in juxtaposition to the Romantic poets. And uh, he focuses on Coleridge. He focuses on uh, Keats. He has a section on Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, and Wordsworth. So Wordsworth and Coleridge together, and then Keats, the younger man. And he goes into a great a bunch of interesting detail, uh, the context that, that these Romantic poets were writing in, and how they were in revolt against the um, sort of the abstractions of the Enlightenment. And he, so he goes through what they're, what they're doing, how they're fighting sort of the machine of modernity with their romantic poetry. And then he turns to the Sermon on the Mount. How does this framing that he, um, 
gives early on apply to the Lord's teaching. And it doesn't, it might seem, as I'm describing it here, that that he's just sort of dragging the romantic poets in by the ears. But I don't think, I don't think he's doing that. Even though you don't, you, you would likely not agree with everything he concludes here, everything that he urges here, there are a number of striking things about it. A provo- it's a provocative book. He's not a silly man. He's a thoughtful man. And he makes a number of sh- just really shrewd observations. Um, here's one, just one in passing. He, when he's talking about Frankenstein, the, the uh, horror novel that uh, Mary Shelley wrote, or the, the one that sort of founded the genre, right? He says, what is so monstrous about Frankenstein's monster? And he says, this being came into being without the agency of a mother, without coming through the feminine, without, there was no mother. And that accounts for the, how, <laughs> the ghastly effect. So th- there are things like that. He's, he's, t- he's touching on some of our modern controversies. He's touching on the history of the Romantic poets, which is really quite fascinating. Uh, Wordsworth uh, returned to the Christian faith later in life, and, as did Coleridge. Uh, Coleridge was more of a head case than Wordsworth was, but Coleridge comes back and, and embraces his own idiosyncratic form of Christianity, which was some species of Calvinism. And Keats uh, died very uh, young. There's sort of the question mark. Keats, unlike, uh, was more thoughtful than I think Shelley was, not Mary Shelley, but Peirce by Shelley. So uh, Shelley is more in high revolt, very, a brilliant poet and a brilliant man, but more in high revolt against heaven. And Clavin is talking about the more thoughtful, open-minded uh, romantics, those who are willing to be disillusioned by the outcome of the French Revolution, that kind of thing. So, uh, a very well-written, elegant uh, book, The Truth and Beauty. I really enjoyed it, and I commend it to you. Mm-hmm.